It is always a joy to be here. And uh, sorry, my good friend Brian's not here, but Florida is much more attractive than John Davis <laughs> preaching. But <laughs> yeah, pray for us. We'll be going back to Cameroon and. A short while in March, and we'll be having a graduation of about, oh, about 35 pastors, for whom you, Sonship, have purchased a John MacArthur study Bible in French for each of them. Uh, they're not cheap. They're about 70 bucks a piece, but uh, you, your church is providing that gift for all of those graduating pastors. And... Uh, we will be going into a village after that to uh, do a conference with another group of pastors, and maybe this will turn into another three-year commitment. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll try to get John over there on a long boat ride. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, this time we're teaching the books of Haggai and Malachi. And uh, then uh, another course I'm teaching on uh, the foundations of marriage, building a marriage to last. And then on uh, the second conference, we'll be teaching the final words of Jesus before his death and after his death. And uh, that's, uh, that, that, that's a great series. I love uh, preaching through that. Take your Bible and look with me in Acts chapter 4, looking at verses 8 through 12. At Grace Church of Philly, I'm in the middle of a series that I've called Reclaiming the Gospel and Evangelism. Reclaiming the Gospel and Evangelism. Because I'm convinced that many Christians... Do, really, do not really understand the simplicity of the gospel. And Paul said it simply. Here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You'll never be a good evangelist unless you understand clearly the gospel. And uh, the last message I will bring on this in this series, uh, which you won't get unless I come back and bring it, is uh, on, on intentional evangelism. But uh, and that's really my goal in the series is to get God's people talking about Jesus to their friends and family and neighbors and suffering whatever antagonism and, and persecution comes with that because without Jesus there is no salvation and people are going to hell uh, without him. So my message tonight is the second in the series and it's called Reclaiming the Exclusivity of the Gospel, the Exclusive Gospel. That only Christ saves. Let me read our text and then get into it. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is 
is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The claim that Jesus Christ is the only way has never been welcomed, received by depraved hearts. But even more today in the world we're living in where the pressure is, we call it pluralism, nothing wrong with pluralism. You know, I I like to be around different people. Uh, We say we're in Philly because we love diversity. We love depravity and we love density. And Philadelphia as Brooklyn is full of that. You have density, depravity, and diversity. Nothing wrong with pluralism. But in our context, When they talk about being tolerant, they no longer mean that you believe that wrong views have the right to exist. That's tolerance. You know, I I have Muslim friends. But I tell my Muslim friends, they are wrong. They're going to hell without Jesus Christ. Now, if I cannot be a friend with you and tell you the truth... If I have to accept as equally valid what you believe, uh, then we'll never be friends. But that's what we're expected to do today, to believe that all beliefs have some equal basis. But if you believe the Bible, you can't, you can't accept that. And... Uh, We know that many non-Christians, liberal Protestants as well, much of Christianity, espouses, as J.I. Packer said, a notion that in all religion there's a common essence, that all adherents of all faiths are climbing the same mountain and will meet at the top. That ideal Christianity, Packer says, many people believe, ideal Christianity would be that it would include stuff from other religions and would in that sense be more than just Christianity. It would be something better than Christianity. Many people believe, he says, that the missionary task is to enrich indigenous faiths with Christian insights rather than to call those faiths in question in any way. Now Packer has a firm hold on the gospel and he sees that we have a problem in the Christian world that is becoming open to the idea that you know maybe God does have some other way of saving people who don't come to Jesus because you know my, my mother's a good person. And my grandmother, nobody was nicer than her. And my, my neighbor, how could God send someone as good as my neighbor to hell? There's something about our depraved minds 
that appears to be more comfortable with the thought that sincere religious people, good people, can somehow find their way to God apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We would like to rewrite the Bible when the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? We think Paul should have said, be diligent in your present religion, whatever that may be. Just, just do your best and be good. Instead of saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Admittedly, many who claim to be Christian just don't want to face the wrath and the criticism of progressive people because if you believe in Jesus as the only way if you believe in a real hell if you believe in biblical morality all of these things which the world rejects Christianity for if you believe that you're backwards you're not intellectual you're not educated I mean you're not you don't belong in the modern world you're arcane archaic but the problem is if you reject the biblical teaching that Jesus Christ is the only way and that all who reject him are ultimately consigned to eternal punishment, then as one missiologist, Ron Blue, points out, you call into question every major area of doctrine in the Bible. If you don't believe that Jesus is the only way, then you are calling into question the doctrine of God. You're asking, you're questioning, is God just? How can God be just sending people to hell who have never even heard of the name of Jesus Christ? He says you call, call into question the doctrine of Christ, which proclaims that Christ alone is sufficient for the salvation of humanity. You call into question the doctrine of salvation itself, because the Bible says salvation is only in the person of Jesus Christ. You call into question the doctrine of man, what we call anthropology, because you're questioning that everyone is bad enough to need someone to die in their place. You call into question the doctrine of the church, because the church's mission is simple. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then he says you call into question eschatology itself. Because the Bible teaches that all things are consummated in the person, Jesus Christ, who died, rose again, and is coming again. And though he doesn't say this, I will add you just call into question the doctrine of Scripture itself. You don't believe the word of God. Is Christ the only way? And are all others eternally damned without him? The Bible calls us to have a deep conviction about that. Are all religions basically the same? 
No, the Bible would say. Is there a second chance after death? No. Does God reward the apparent sincerity of the heathen? And again, the Bible would answer, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. If we believe that, then we understand that there are millions, perhaps billions, in our modern world that have never even heard the name Jesus. And there certainly are billions who do not understand what that name Jesus means. They know the name, they know Christianity, but they don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a lot of that is our failure, even on the mission field. The modern missionary movement in many places is no more than just a social movement that has not asserted the exclusive claims of the Christian message of Jesus Christ. For many, Christianity is building hospitals and schools and housing and wells and sewer systems. And, and I'm for all of that. We give white canes to blind people, but never without the exclusive claim that Jesus Christ is the one and only Lord and Savior. And so Christianity becomes a social movement, or it becomes, as in many countries, a syncretism of Christianity and whatever else is there. In Haiti, it's Christianity and voodooism. In Africa, it's Christianity and animism and the worship of ancestors. In Latin America, it's Christianity and pagan idolatry and all kinds of, of mysticism. Christianity is not known in many places for the exclusive message that Jesus Christ alone is Lord and Savior. And yet that is our calling. And it's that which brings the, the angst and anger and opposition of the world. They don't care that you're building a hospital. Muslims build hospitals. Hindus build hospitals. They don't care that you feed the poor. They don't, don't even care if you give canes to blind people. That's a good work that anybody can do. But what brings the anger of the world is that you proclaim that only Jesus Christ can save you and rescue you from your sin. Earlier in this chapter, the setting of the chapter is that uh, a blind, a crippled man was healed. And this, this humanitarian act was applauded. It was accepted. The outrage of the religious crowd was not because a crippled man was healed. The outrage was because of this. We read in verse 2. It says the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They, they were annoyed. They didn't care that you did a good work, that you're a good person, you're a nice neighbor, you have good family. They don't care about that, but 
when you proclaim the name of Jesus, that brings the anger of the world. So my message tonight is to encourage you to advance the name of Jesus as the only way of salvation, to live with the deep conviction in your own life that Jesus is the way. Because if you believe that, that compels you to talk to other people about Jesus Christ. Three reasons in our text why we should give ourselves to advancing the name of Jesus as the only salvation. I'm going to talk about his unique person. I'm going to talk about God's unique plan centered in Christ. And then I'm going to talk about the saving power that is in the name of Jesus Christ. But first of all, this unique person. Now, when Paul defined the gospel in its essence and simplicity, when he said that the gospel is Christ died for our sins, by using the name Christ, he was rooting the gospel message in Old Testament scripture, in Old Testament promise, letting us know that this Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. But here when, he, when we listen to the words of Peter as he preaches to the religious crowd, he says, I want you to know that all of this happened by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I have to think about that, this Jesus of Nazareth, because Jesus was a popular uh, Jewish name, Joshua is Jesus uh, in, in, in the Hebrew. Hosea is a, is a, a form of, of, of the same name. Uh, it was a common Jewish name to call somebody Jesus, Jehovah saves. I'm sure there was a Jesus of Capernaum and a Jesus of Judea and Jerusalem and of Galilee and, and of Decapolis. You know, Jesus was a common name. But when he identifies this Jesus Christ as one of Nazareth, he's reminding us that this is a real human being. This is a real man with a real history who lived a real life that others know about. This is Jesus of Nazareth. You crucified him and God raised him. But he's Jesus of Nazareth. Now it's interesting that we know the Bible doesn't tell us much about those years from, you know, we, we know he was born in Bethlehem. Uh, they fled to Egypt perhaps until he was two years old. And then they came and they lived in Nazareth. And uh, we see him at the temple when he's 12 years old. And other than that, we don't see Jesus until he's about 30 years old. This Jesus of Nazareth. So I have to sort of extrapolate and speculate. I would call it biblical informed speculation because I do know something about the character of this person Jesus, this teenager, this junior high, this elementary kid, this guy who worked in the shop of Joseph, his carpenter. 
I mean, the, the one who went through his early 20s and late 20s as, as a single man living and working in Nazareth. But the Bible tells us that Jesus was always holy, harmless, undefiled, Peter says, always separate from sinners. He was the righteous one who gave his life for the unrighteous ones. Peter again tells us that he did no sin. No guile was ever found in his mouth. So I imagine if you were growing up in the neighborhood of Jesus of Nazareth, you would have known this kid. Somebody who loved God with all of his heart, and soul, and mind, and strength, because he was the perfect Jew. He's the second Adam. He's perfect man, but he's a perfect Jew. Loving God, loving others, obeying the law, obeying the law perfectly, never saying a foul word to his neighbors, never getting disgusted, never getting angry, always kind, always good. I try to imagine that day that Jesus was coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then as Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water, this voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. Now, I wonder if anybody from Nazareth was there that day. Because if they were, I think they might have said, well, if anybody could be the son of God, it would have to be Jesus of Nazareth because he is a perfect human being. The only one. Now, I tell my wife sometimes, she's, you're perfect. Uh, but I know she's not, but, and she knows she's not, but she's very special, but she's not perfect. And if you hang around any of us long enough, you will find that we all have flaws and that we live with repentance every day. But Jesus... He was a real man in real flesh, a real Jewish boy who loved the law, loved his God, loved his neighbor, lived an absolutely perfect life. And Peter wants these religious leaders to know that this one whom they crucified, this was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is a real human being, a real Jewish boy. Of course, that's important because in the first century world is growing what is called incipient Gnosticism. It's not full-blown Gnosticism. It's just Gnosticism that's beginning. The ideas are beginning to circulate that, that how could Jesus be God in flesh? Because matter, the created world, physical world is evil. And God would never 
reduce himself to coming part of, 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 of a humanity, of a body, a physical body that is evil. The true God would never do that. And so Gnostics began to teach that he only appeared to be a person. He was not truly human. And if you've read 1 John and the epistles of John, John is, is engaging that and, and affirming, no, we felt him and we saw him and we heard him and we handled him the word of life. He truly was human. It's important that in his incarnation, he is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that he is truly human. Not only in his incarnation and in his life, but Peter says, you crucified him. You crucified Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the son of Mary. The one who, Mark tells us, had other brothers, Jonas and Judas and Simon, and he had other brothers. He had a family. This is a real man that you crucified. He was truly human. He must be truly human to be our Savior. Because it was humanity who rebelled and sinned and failed to obey the laws of God. It was humanity that was under the curse of the law and the penalty of death. The savior of mankind must be truly human. Because he must be born under the law. He must live under the law. He must obey the law. And when he dies, he must not be deserving of death because he broke the law. He must be a man and a perfect man. And that's what Paul tells us happened in Galatians 4. When the fullness of the time was come... God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. But there's something about this good man dying for me that is repulsive to a depraved heart. I still remember my, my Italian jeweler friend arguing with me when I would tell him, Jesus died for you, Tony. And he would turn red. He'd say, but I don't want him to die for me. I don't need him to die for me. Because he was a good man. He was a generous man. The Boy Scouts washed his catalog. He gave him a hundred dollar bill. He bought all of the police in his town new nine millimeters and bulletproof vests. FBI from all over the country would come to buy their jewelry from him because he would essentially give it away to law enforcement. He was a good man and he would get angry. I didn't ask him to die for me. I don't want him to die for me. I don't need him to die for me. Maybe we're not that strong in our opposition. 
But there's something within the human heart that resists the idea that I'm so bad that I need a savior. Gnosticism didn't like the idea of a savior who was human. And the consequences of that was, if, if, he was, if he wasn't truly human, then there's no way that he could be crucified. So they have an explanation for that. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers of the second century, talks about one of the Gnostics named Basilides who explained what really happened when it appeared that Jesus crucified. Here's what he said. He said, Jesus did not really suffer death, but Simon, a certain man of Cyrene, being compelled, bore the cross in his stead. Well, we know that's what the Bible says. So this Simon was transfigured by Christ so that he might be thought to be Jesus. And through ignorance and error, Simon was crucified. While Jesus, he says, received the form of Simon. And Jesus, standing by, laughed at them because he was a power without a body and he had the mind of the father and he could transfigure himself as he pleased and from that crowd as he left as he derided them for their foolishness he ascended up into heaven that's early Gnosticism it's, I find it interesting that later Islam would come along and though that they would accept the humanity of Christ, they would essentially follow Gnosticism in their denial of the crucifixion of Christ. Here's what the Quran says. They, speaking of Christians or, or, or speaking of the crowd, they said in boast, we killed Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him. But so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ there are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For of a surety, they did not kill him. And Allah raised him up to himself. And Allah is exalted in power, wise. So they basically say that it wasn't Jesus who died. And there are later Islamic interpreters of the Quran who accept exactly the Gnostic idea that Simon of Cyrene was transfigured and took on the appearance of Jesus Christ. But this is not uncommon. This is just the human heart trying to explain away the significance of the crucifixion of a man. Jesus of Nazareth, a real man, a perfect man, who died in the place of others. And yet, this is what our Bible teaches us. For as by one man's disobedience, 
the many were made sinners, that's Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, that's Jesus. And that one man's obedience, the crown of his obedience, is described by Paul and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. You crucified Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a real man, but God raised Jesus Christ of Nazareth from the dead. Because he was born as a man. He lived as a man. He died as a man. He rose again as a man without denying that at the same time he always remained truly God. But it's as a man that he's living in my place. And as a man he's dying in my place. And as a man he is rising as a representative of all redeemed humanity in my place. I love Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2. I know theology will debate and try to explain a lot of in here, but uh, forget the theology for a minute. Just listen to the words. God desires all people to be saved, Paul said, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and you know this verse, and if not, you should. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. The second Adam, the man, Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to say, he gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. You and I will not boldly and fearlessly advance the name of Jesus until we really believe the uniqueness of his person, that this Jesus of Nazareth was really God in human flesh, and that he comes as the second Adam. He comes to live under the law, to obey the law in my place, to earn the righteousness that I have forfeited because in as I understand it the righteousness he imputes to me is not his intrinsic and eternal divine righteousness but the righteousness that he had because he was obedient to the law he imputes that obedience and the consequence of that to me it's this Jesus you crucified but God raised and it's this Jesus to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess someday that he is Lord secondly we should advance the name of Jesus Christ because of God's plan that's associated with that name 
From the beginning of the world, yes, even before the beginning of the world, God purposed that everything would be centered in and consummated in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter tells us, as he addresses the leaders that day, Peter tells us that this is something that was prophetically announced. He's quoting from Psalm 118. A thousand years before Christ, the psalmist was speaking of the Messiah. And he's talking about him, that the the stone which the builders rejected, the same is made the head of the corner. And then we sing the song, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Sometimes we mistake that for every day. Now, We should be rejoicing and glad about every day. And God has made every day. But that's not what the psalm is celebrating. The psalm is celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the day. The Lord's day. Resurrection day. This is the day where we commemorate and celebrate that God took the stone which the builders rejected. And he made it the head of the corner. This is prophetically announced. And Matthew, so wonderfully as he writes his gospel to the Jews about Jesus the Messiah, so often would repeat the phrase, this happened, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. But God's plan in God's design would be publicly attacked. He says, you builders rejected it. God has purposed a plan of redemption that includes opposition and antagonism and and persecution, not only for the Savior, but for those who follow the Savior. Listen to Jesus' final words to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know who sent me. If I had had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. We are representing a stone which the builders rejected. Jesus did not fit into the religious and political and economic structures of of the world he entered. And we know that he wasn't given to accommodating himself to coexist. In Philly, there are certain very progressive neighborhoods who have a little symbol in their window. It's co exist. 
not believe in coexistence. I, as much as lies within you, Paul said, live peaceably with all men. I want to get along. But not at the expense of the gospel. And the whole coexist is more a religious ideal than anything else. That we all need to get along and the way to get along is to accept the equal validity of every truth claim. And in that, we can't coexist. Jesus would speak to those structures. He would speak to their evils. He called men to repentance. He called men to a transformation that only the Spirit of God could bring about. He did not get along with the Pharisees. He did not placate them. But he convicted them of their false teaching, their hypocritical living. And if Jesus were living today, he would not be an unbelieving ecumenist. He would not be part of a world council or a national council or a prayer meeting where we want to get together all religious people and let's just pray. Now Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. And that sword is essentially me and my work and my word. Because what you do with Jesus, you either unite in Jesus, and that's what we're calling people to. You know, I could have called this message the inclusiveness of the gospel. And I could have rightly done that. Because the gospel is saying to everyone, come on in. There's a door, it's Jesus. There's a way, it's Jesus. There's truth you need to believe, it's Jesus. There's life you need to receive, it's Jesus. But come on in. It's inclusive in Jesus. But as the builders looked at the kind of worship temple they wanted to erect, and they evaluated the stones that they would use to build the temple, they come across Jesus. Because their idea of a temple is a temple where men can make their own way to God. And they pick up this stone, Jesus, which says, I am the only way to God. And they said, rubbish pile. You don't fit. And Jesus does not fit anywhere. Except where he has confessed to be the only Savior and Lord. He does not fit. You can't make him fit. And if you try to make him fit, then you've got another different Jesus you're pushing in there. You builders rejected this stone. I feel like so many Christians, and I can be just as guilty, we just want to get along. Sometimes you get, you get tired of the harassment, the rejection. 
That's why you need the church, because otherwise you'll live in loneliness if you're truly living for Jesus Christ. Without the church, you will live in loneliness. But because we want to get along, we sacrifice our identity with the exclusive claim of Christ. Not necessarily, nobody minds, minds it if you say, I'm a Christian. I mean, there's hundreds of millions of Christians in the world. They don't mind that, but what kind of, are you, are you one of those born-agains? <laughs> Now, I don't use that term often. Jesus didn't use it often, but I believe in it. And I have to say, yes, September 10th, 1970, 8 o'clock on a Thursday night, I was born again in the family of God. But you're one of those born agains. And right away, there's this pushing you away. And so we realize that this hatred of the world for the name of Jesus and we're often intimidated into silence. We're, we're like Peter, warming ourselves by the fire with the haters of Jesus Christ and denying his name because we are just afraid. David Jeremiah offers some good advice for those who live in a hostile culture. That's you and me. And by the way, if you're going to listen to Christian radio, TV, don't listen to the crazies out there. Don't listen to Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and all those wackos who do not understand the Bible. Listen to a David Jeremiah or a John MacArthur or a John Piper or an Adrian Rogers or a uh, John Verdi or a Brian Martin. Uh, but here's what David Jeremiah said. Here's advice for living in a hostile culture. Number one, be convinced of what you believe. And it all starts there. Do I believe this stuff? About Jesus? That God really became man? Born in Bethlehem? Grew up in Nazareth? At the age of 30, he's baptized, identified as the Messiah? In his resurrection, Paul says that God declared him to be the son of God with power by the resurrection. Do I believe this? That Christ alone in his death for sinners and his resurrection, he alone is the savior. Be convinced of what you believe. Then he says, ask God for courage. He knows you're afraid. Ask him. If you ask him for bread, he doesn't give you a stone. You ask him for courage, he doesn't give you fear. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but a power of love, of a sound mind. Thirdly, he said, he said, depend on the spirit of God, on the power of the spirit. You're weak. People say, I'm weak, I can't talk. So what? <laughs> so what? Apart from God's grace, we'd all be there. Yeah. And then fourthly, he says, just trust God to use your feeble witness. I had somebody tell me the other night, he says, you know, I try to, say, I, I try to explain the gospel, but, you know, I get so tongue-tied and, you know, I, I just mess up. See, you can't mess up if you're trying. You know Jesus died for you. You know you trusted him as your savior. You know what happened. Just tell people what happened to you. Just tell your story, and in your story, make sure that it's more about Jesus than about you. 
And then you've witnessed and trust God to use that feeble witness. I was in the home of a Jewish man the other night who's been uh, attending our church, he and his wife, and baptized his wife about a month ago. But uh, his dad was Jewish and his mother was Roman Catholic, so he grew up confused. But, you know, he did his bar mitzvah and, you know, he, he was basically raised as a Jewish young boy, but he's been coming to church and going to men's Bible study and God's just been working in his heart. All I had to do was go by his home and pick that ripe fruit right off the tree and just ask him, you believe this stuff you hear? Yeah, I believe it. Then why not right now? Pray with me and confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Trust God to use your witness. There were multiple people that invested in this man's life along the way. And in God's time, he brings the harvest. Later, if you read in this chapter, you read the account of the boldness of the, of the apostles and disciples. Because after they uh, get together, they remember the words of Psalm 2. Where the psalmist talked about this anointed one of the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's a song about the Messiah. And it talks about how the, the nations will rage against him. Because they hate the Messiah. And the apostles are saying, hey... This is what the psalmist was talking about. This is what's, what's happening right now. The nations are angry that the Messiah has come. And so in verse 29, they ask. They say, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's good advice from David Jeremiah. Be convinced of what you believe. Ask God for courage. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Trust God to use your feeble witness. God is the one who does the saving. This Jesus of Nazareth, you rejected him, you crucified him, but he has become the head of the corner. That stone that you put on the rubbish pile, God came along and took that stone out of the grave and said, I will build my people, my holy temple, my church, my new community around this rejected stone. And if you believe that, that God took the one that the world wanted nothing to do with and still wants nothing to do with. And God took him and said, I am building my eternal temple and family around him. If you believe that, then ask God for boldness to tell others about Jesus Christ. The third reason is because only saving power is revealed in that name. That saving power is exclusive. 
the text is so straightforward. There is salvation in none other. There aren't many roads climbing to the mountain of salvation of which Christianity is only one, as many believe. Again, J.I. Packer says the task of Christian mission is not to supplement ethnic faiths. The task of Christian mission is to displace them, to put them aside. When we present the gospel and are asking people to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we're asking them, we are destroying any other possible means of salvation. You don't add him to your pedestal of other gods. It is exclusive. It is universal. There is no, none other name under heaven given among men. People ask, are the heathen lost? Of course, my first question is, well, what do you mean by heathen? You mean somebody you've never met or don't even really know if they exist, but you imagine that there's somebody somewhere in the world that never heard the name of, is that what you mean? Or do you mean your heathen neighbor? What do you mean? Because if you mean your heathen neighbor, then go ask him. (laughs) Go talk to him. I mean, if you've got people in your life that have never heard the name of Jesus and don't understand the gospel don't blame God because they've never heard just go tell them but Christians many Christians want to believe in some sort of universalism that that God saves people in some other way because it, it's, it is sometimes very emotionally painful to think of specific people you know who as far as you know died and went to hell. And maybe as far as you know they never tr- truly understood the gospel. Well, you know, there's no way we can really ever know that about anybody. Uh, I always say to people who are, you know, just overwhelmed that somebody that they love is in hell because they never came to Jesus. I I always say, you know, unless I heard them in their dying breath say that, then I don't know. I know that if they didn't come to Jesus, they're in hell. But I don't know if somewhere along the line somebody sowed some seed in their heart and somewhere, maybe in their dying moment like the thief on the cross, they said, God, I repent. I know I've been wrong and stubborn and I want Jesus. So unless you're absolutely sure that they were cursing God on the way out, just leave it in God's hands. Because when you wake up in heaven, the absence of anyone will not take one bit of joy out of being in the presence of Jesus Christ. But we want to rid ourselves of that that painful emotional burden. And there's really only two ways to do it. 
One is to deny the truth the Bible teaches. And keep telling, well, I don't, I don't believe that. You know, I, I believe that my, my mother was good and she's got to be in heaven even if she didn't come. You, you can deny the truth and maybe that'll bring you some emotional release, but it won't change the reality. Or you can do what Christians do. We rest in God's sovereignty and his goodness. We just rest. I don't know the mind of God, the, all the workings of God. I, I got this little peanut human brain and he's God. I just rest in his sovereignty. I know he never did anything wrong. So we trust him. There's great danger in not believing that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. If you don't believe that tonight, there's possibly two dangers you're facing. One is a danger of losing your own soul. Now, I don't believe anybody can lose a genuine salvation. But I believe there are people who think they're saved who aren't saved. When you say your faith is in Jesus Christ, he's my savior, but, you know, I'm, I'm a very generous person. So, I believe good Muslims go to heaven. Now, I'm speaking for others. I'm not speaking to myself, so don't get that wrong. I sat down with a theology professor from a to-the-left evangelical seminary. He's a Baptist pastor, a liberal Baptist church, but he's a Baptist pastor. And uh, he told me, when I told him we were evangelizing Muslims, he said, Muslims don't need to get saved. They believe in one God. They're okay. I thought, what, you're, you're training preachers? How can you believe that Jesus is your Savior, but that others can get saved another way? Because if you're saying you believe Jesus is your Savior, then, one, you're believing someone who you must think is a liar. Because he said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father, but by me. If he lied about that, then maybe he lied about being a ransom for your sin. How do you, how do you reconcile that in your mind? How do you accept the Bible as the authority for offering you the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, but reject the Bible as an authority saying that this is the only way? That lost people come to Christ. So I say you're in danger of your own soul. Maybe you really don't know the Jesus of the Bible. But secondly, maybe you do know him. And the consequent danger is you allow others to go on a path to eternal judgment without ever giving them a warning about the gospel. I still remember maybe only having been a Christian for a couple of months and you know I was reading everything I could to understand the Bible and and uh, somebody gave me two little booklets. Here's how part one, here's how part two. Here's how part one was you know how do you grow as a Christian? You know you read your Bible, you pray, you go to church, you get baptized, you know you, you, all these things and so I did, did all of that and then I read here's how part two and that was how to advance the name of Jesus. 
And he told a story that just struck my heart as guilty. He said, imagine you walking down your street one day and a house is on fire. And up at the second story window is somebody crying out, help, help. And you say, well, I'm not on fire. I'm safe. I'm not in danger. And you just keep walking. And it just struck me that day. That's the way I was as a Christian. I, I was safe. I'm in Jesus. And the world around me is on fire. And I didn't care. Again, Ron Blue, a good theologian and missiologist, says this. The conclusion is clear. Untold billions are lost. They are desperately lost. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, can reach across the gulf between a perfect God and a perverse human race. And if the unevangelized billions are truly lost, one burning question remains. How will they hear the unique message of hope? He goes on to say that nowhere in the book of Acts will you ever find one single instance that God saves a human being without employing another human agent to bring the message to them. He goes on to say sometimes God will go to great lengths to get his people to do the work they're supposed to be doing. But as Roman 10 says, how do they hear without a preacher? And how do they preach unless somebody sends them to preach? They must hear the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So some years ago, as I often do, I sit down and I think about my own lack of evangelistic fervor and the desperation of the lost and just remind myself not only of what I have, but what, what they need. And as I thought about the plight of the wicked that day, I wrote these words and I close with them. Hear the cry of anguished soul caught in sin's delusion, bound by Satan's fearful grasp, living in confusion. Cries of sorrow, cries of woe, cries of desperation, feeble cries of hopelessness, longing for salvation. Are there none who hear that cry? A painful cry of sorrow, an anguished cry, a cry of doom, a cry without tomorrow. Why do those who know the cross, the cross of God's redemption, 
never spread the story of real joy and free salvation. See the blood of God's own son shed for world redemption. See the dearest lamb of God dying for salvation. See the resurrected son. Hear his words of power. Go and make disciples now. Go in this late hour. And then I close all my life to him I give. I will go and warn them. I'll tell them of redemption's plan. Yes, today I'll tell them. But will you? For there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for such a glorious Savior and a glorious salvation. Thank you for the free gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May we not receive your grace in vain. But like Paul, may your grace so impact our lives that we will tell others the good news, the gospel, that you, a holy God, have accomplished for sinners a perfect salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help us to not be ashamed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.